You're listening to Cooper Talk. Oh, welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. During the week, I cook, and on weekends, Joanne cooks. And all of a sudden, you know, she's on this pescatarian diet. She did it right before the wedding a few months ago. So I enjoy that. So tonight I'm cooking uh, roasted eggplant polenta stacks on ratatouille. Well, I've never cooked eggplant. I've only cooked the little ones. So she says to me as she's leaving, she goes, now when you start prepping the dinner, make sure you put salt on the eggplant because it pulls the bitterness out. And then she says, and I should know how to cook eggplant because I'm Italian. So I wanted to say to her, well, if you know how to cook so good, you should do it. But instead, I said, yes, dear. Anyway, we have a great show today. My, <laughs> my, my gentleman is uh, my guest. He's, uh, he's a musician. He's a songwriter. He's an author. He's a musical director, a record producer, a concert producer, a professor. And I know he just got done with the Light of Day shows up in uh, Asbury, I believe. And my guest is Richard Barone. How you doing, Richard? Hey, I'm good. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Now, now, are you, you, you do all this musical stuff. Do you also cook? Because you, you probably cook, too. And I'm going to get really mad because you're do. so talented. I'm Italian. I'm Italian. Italian men like to cook. It's just, it's, it's in our DNA. Yes, I do cook. And I don't cook eggplant that often, though. So that's, uh, I might have to try that. And I did, I did, I didn't even think about the salt cutting the, the acidity down, but that's a good idea, actually. That's a very good idea. Yeah, I've never cooked it. If it comes out, I'll send you the recipe. <laughs> Let me know. Let me know. I do cook. I like cooking. It's one of my that's like getting out of my music for a minute. It's when I cook. It's like it's that that's the that's when you go into the subconscious. Like that's when you that's when you are not when I'm not doing music is when I actually come up come up with creative ideas. So cooking is a creative outlet for me. Now, tell me about the Light of Day tour. If people, if you don't know, I went to see. I actually went to see. I live outside Philadelphia. I went to see it last year at the World Cafe, and I saw the great Willie Nile, and. Um, Tell me how you got involved with it, because people, it's for it's for support of Parkinson's. How did you get involved with the Light of Day? They called me. I started doing shows with them about ten years ago. Uh, they were doing a tour of Europe, and they asked me if I would go on board. It was a wonderful tour with Alejandro Escobedo and myself and Willie Nile and a few others um, uh, from various, uh, also some some uh, a few people that we picked up along the way because we were in Wales and England. It was really fantastic. Anyway, I love the light of day and what they do. It's a very, like you said, a very, it's a very good charity. Uh, they're celebrating their twentieth year this year, and they asked for the bongos to perform. Now we have not performed lately because that was a that was our first bongos show in quite a number of years uh, in Asbury Park this Friday night, and it was so much fun. We played a double bill with a group called Drama Rama. Oh yeah, I know John's and been on John's been on the show. Yeah, and so that they were great, and we had a fantastic crowd. It was just a very exciting night. The next day, I did another Light of Day show solo. I did a Beatles song circle that was a lot of fun, where we uh, we had several artists trading off Beatles songs. And I always try to I always try to pick ones that people don't often perform, you know. Um, but all of them are good. So you can and you, when you do a Beatles song, you know, you can do it your own way. The, the songs are so in our culture that you can you can you know do them in many different ways and people know the song you know so that was really fun that was an afternoon matinee now now, now what yeah. Beatles songs did you play I played well because it's been on my mind lately I did the song Revolution 1 not 9 even though I like 9 <laughs> uh, Revolution I did a, I tried to pick one like I said that are not too commonly done one is uh, It's Only Love that John wrote um, I love that song it's just it's an intricate melody. He didn't like it. Lennon never, he kind of disowned that lyric, but I love it. 
so I did It's Only Love, I did Revolution, I did Cry Baby Cry from the White Album, which I actually recorded in 1987 on my Google Blue Halo album, I love that one. Again, rarely performed. Um, I, I, I usually, I often do From Me To You, uh, which I did at that show. That's, uh, that is from their, like one of their first singles, and again, rarely performed. So I think those were the ones I did. I might have done one more, but those are the ones that Revolution, Cry Baby Cry, It's Only Love, and From Me To You. Now, as I was doing my uh, research on you, and I used Wikipedia, yeah. and you never know if Wikipedia is correct but it said you were yeah. born in tampa and at seven I you am. started doing you started doing radio at seven yeah that's true R wikipedia my wikipedia page happens to be fairly true I, I i was surprised people have asked me if it is and when i checked it it's been pretty accurate and yes i was seven no. i was on the radio on walt radio 11 10 a.m um top 40 station uh when i was seven years old yeah i no. had a show called the show was called Beach Party, and my I was the littlest DJ. Now, how did how did she get into that? That just fascinates me. How, I mean, a seven year old. I mean, I used to listen to the AM radio. My parents would play, you know, I'd hear Sweet Carolina stuff like that. But to me, radio was so far away. You know, it was in that box as we drove, or my dad yeah, used to play yeah. uh, Lawrence Welk and stuff in the stereo in the kitchen. How did you end up yeah. getting a job at seven? Well. You know, like you said, it, it seems like in the box. I wanted to find out what was in the box. So I asked my mom to take me to meet one of the DJs at a public event they were doing. And I met him. His name was Marv Ray. He was a top 40 DJ. And um, he wanted to put me on the air. I said, well, I, I told him, I told him flat out, I can do that. And he said, what, what do you mean you can do what? He said, I can be a DJ. I told him. And then he said, oh, yeah, well, I'll put you on the air right after this break. And so there was a commercial or whatever going on. And then they put me on the air and I announced the next record, which happened to be Donovan's Sunshine Superman, which they were playing as an old And I loved that. I love that Donovan. So I, I was thrilled to announce it. So I did. And people liked my introduction. They called into the station. There were some calls. And they said, can you come back and do this again sometime? Out of that, I got a Sunday radio show. It was called, like I said, called Beach Party. It was live from the municipal beach in Tampa, Florida. And uh, I got to spin records and talk on the air, live. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That, I mean, that fascinates me because, you know, I think seven. I'm like, I, I think I had a paper route. <laughs> I can barely do that. So, But, you know, but the, the, my, one of my favorite things about that story is that I still work with Donovan now. I mean, I, I, I made, we made two albums this last year, 2019. I've been working with Donovan for the last 15 years or so. And um, he's an amazing artist, and he was the first artist I played on the radio. And also, he was my first concert that I ever saw with Donovan. Now, so I'm very connected with Donovan and his family. Now, what is that like when you sit there, you know, years later, you, you play yeah. with someone who, as you said, he was the first concert, first song you played on yeah. the radio. Are, were you very intimidated when you met him, or were you just like a no. fan guy? or what? How did it happen? No, I was a performer because he asked me, he had come to see me perform at the in, at the public theater here in New York, and uh, and then he was doing a show at a beautiful venue in New Jersey called the Tabernacle. I don't know if you know that venue. It's in Mount Tabor. It's like a church, very large, round venue. And he was performing there, and he asked me if I would be his opening act. Now, I wasn't really into being people's opening act, but I said yes for him because I would do anything for Donovan. So I did um, a set, and in my set, I performed one of the songs, which I love, which no one does, called Cosmic Wheel. And he was 
he loved the way I was doing it. I had a cellist and an accordion player. It was like this very sort of French arrangement. And uh, he came on stage and joined me. And from then on, we've been working together. That was in the early 2000s. Now, you're a young guy in Florida. You're done. You're yeah. doing a DJ. Now, then you start producing records. How do you get into that? Like, you know, it's like the sound, the system, it's not like today where you can just produce a record on, you know, on the on your yeah. computer. What was it like? You know, and how yeah, did... yeah, we had to the recording studio. I, the first recordings I did were with my own band. I was starting, I, I was starting a band. Uh, this was during the days when punk, when the punk music was had, because I loved Ramones and I loved Sex Pistols and all those groups. I was just in high school and I just fell in love with the punk scene. I loved Patti Smith, Richard Hell, all those groups. So, um, I started a band, it was a trio, and I wanted to record. There was a small recording studio in town that was just four track, but had a good, good sized room, and I thought, gee, I'd love to record there. So somehow I got our bass player, a girl, a fantastic bass player named Marla. I got her, I suggested maybe she could work at the studio. I think that's, I think that's what had happened. It's a little bit hazy, but I think I might have suggested wow, you could maybe work at that studio. Well, once she worked there, then we could get into the studio to record. So I started to learn recording techniques by kind of going in after hours. Then soon after, right around that time, in fact, Tiny Tim, the legendary artist, Tiny Tim, who I'm sure you know, uh, uh, was coming through town, and we went to go meet him, and he was absolutely fantastic. He was like a font of information and knowledge about music from all eras, and just did so many amazing songs. He was, he was great about covering Beatles songs also, but in a very unique way. But anyway, I said, well, well, I'm a, I'm a producer. Why don't we go in the studio and make a record? So he said, yes. I was only 16. But he came into the studio with us, and we recorded an album. It finally came out in 2009 on Collector's Choice Records. It's called I've Never Seen a Straight Banana, which is one of the songs from that. And um, so I started to, I learned pretty fast about producing, about really making it about the artist. I learned a lot from Tiny Tim because he was so unique. And the idea was, okay, how do we make how do we make this the most like representative of him and his uniqueness? And that's kind of how I got my my brain kind of working into the mode of being a producer was through Tiny Tim. His uniqueness really forced me to think about what a recording is like when you're recording you're you're not just turning the machine on you are shaping uh, a representation of an artist you know now now when you were behind the boards for the first time did you just feel at yeah. home yeah i did well i had always been into recording a little bit at home because just on a little mono tape recorder because my dad had bought me one when i was a kid and i would practice my radio introductions i would practice my radio stuff on a tape recorder so I could listen to it, you know? So I was into recording, and I kind of understood, like, how miking would work and how close mic and far mics, and I, I was learning about that stuff early, very, very early. I mean, I was seven. So by the time I was 16, that was very second nature to me. It was just about, now it was just about uh, making sure it was captured properly on the tape, you know? So you're you're in Tampa. You're 16. You know you yeah. you're you're excelling at what you're doing at a very young age. Well, I'm trying to excel. I mean, I was still struggling to excel, but I wanted to excel. Yeah. So so what made you decide to go to New York? And and did you know anyone up there when you moved? Or well, it's an interesting story because I didn't know anybody here. I had an uncle and aunt here, but they didn't really 
I didn't want to really bother them by staying with them because I was a, I'm a night owl and I knew I'd be going to clubs and going to see bands. I didn't want to disturb them, so I couldn't really stay with them really. I, even though I did a visit for a summer to kind of learn the ropes about New York. But what happened was another group that came through town in Tampa was the Monkees, Davy and Mick, Davy and Mickey of the Monkees, and they had a backing band. They were, it was just the two of them performing at the Monkees show. And the backing band was one of the bands from CBGB's at the time. One of the bands that played there called the Laughing Dogs. And I was aware of them because of my obsession with punk rock and this New York scene. So I knew who the Laughing Dogs were. Um, so after the show, I met the Monkees. I met Davey and Nikki, And then I said to the band, hey, guys, I know you're the Laughing Dogs. They, they didn't promote themselves as that during the show. They were just a backing band, you know. But I, they were so amazed that I knew who they were. You know, in Tampa, because that's like a another planet. Um, <laughs> and they were amazed, and they we somehow befriended that was with this girl Jean, and uh, she and I both became friends with the Laughing Dogs and Mickey and Davy, especially Davy. So they were traveling through Florida, and they invited us to go along to uh, Miami with them the next day, which we did. And we ended up doing a few shows. With, I ended up hanging out with them for a few shows in a row. I wasn't performing; I was just hanging out with them. And then at some point, Jean said, "You know, we really want to move to New York at some point." And then they offered us to stay in their loft because they were on tour for the whole year. So that's how I got to New York. I stayed at the Laughing Dogs loft in Brooklyn. Now and things happened really things happened very quickly for me when I got to New York. Yeah, I was going to say because I, I, I met the Bongos really fast. I mean, really within a few weeks, I answered an ad in the Village Boys, and it was the Bongos looking for a guitar player. But they weren't they were not the Bongos yet. They were just musicians looking for another bandmate, and. Uh, and then also, Gene got a job uh, as an ass uh, assistant to the producer of a, a soap opera, As the World Turns, and she got me on the show. So I was acting on a soap opera and starting the bongos all within a few weeks of being in New York. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, people try to act for years. So you're in New York, you start the bongos, you you, you answer an ad in the yeah. paper. Yeah. How did you guys start yeah, formulating? Like, how did you start formulating yeah. your sound? Well, you know, the sound, because in, their, in, in the ad that they put out, it said, you know, looking for guitar player into Eno, Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, um, you know, Roxy Music, David Bowie. And I'm like, okay, that's me. I can do that. Uh, you know, that's what I loved. And so as soon as we met, we hit it off immediately. And we, we you know, soon formed the band. It first went through a different permutation called A, the letter A. That had a guy, Glenn Morrow, in it, who became the head of... Um, a, a great record label, Bar None Records. But the other three of us formed a trio, and that became the Bongos. Now, what was the music? And the sound, the, the sound came together very fast. It came together extremely quickly. We just had a great sound together. So that was not, a, there was no effort or struggle there. That was easy. Now, tell me about the scene back then, back in New York. I know you went to Hoboken. What was the scene like? Who was popular? And how did, I mean, you, you, you know, you're one of the first new wave bands, or whatever you call it. How did how what was the yeah. scene like for you guys, and and how did you start getting a following? Well, um, people were hungry for uh, something new. Um, the punk scene had you know had reached a good peak actually, and the you know it, the, the punk movement that was starting in New York you know became a, a, a quickly co-opted by the British punk scene. So that that kind of moved over to England like. The, what, what, what remained in New York was a more creative, artistic, um, art-driven 
kind of rock. So, you know, bands were playing like in art galleries and some of the some of the place the venues in Soho, we used to play at a venue called the Tier Three and it was really like an art gallery. And you you would hear a lot of experimentation, bands like Bush Tetras and others. Um, we got part of that we became part of that scene very early on. It was a very creative scene, anything goes, any sound, you know, you could really experiment. Um there were no other bands in Hoboken. We were the only band in Hoboken when we started. There were just simply no other bands. There was one venue and no bands, just the bongo. We we would invite other bands to come see us. Other other bands did come, and Maxwell's, which was our venue where we used to rehearse, became a super popular venue. But it was not a venue when we asked them if we could play there. It was a restaurant, bar. It was a bar, you know, a bar with a, with a bar menu. Uh, and it became a great music venue that lasted about 20 years at least, I think. Um, but yeah, the, the scene was, it's something we created. All of us, not just the bongos, but all of these bands. We created our own world, which was a combination of sort of uh, artistic expression and rock and roll and visual arts. And, you know, it was a very heady time. It was a very exciting time. And things were, it was a, things were very new, really appreciated uh what was new and the i think one of the things the bongos brought to it was that plus an eye on the traditions of rock and roll like we really like buddy holly so how do we how do we have the spirit of buddy holly in in modern dance music and with experimentation and open-ended uh improvisation how do we do that so that's really how the bongo started. That combination is kind of danceable rock with musical experimentation in it. We were combining what we liked. Now, what kind of crowds were you drawing? Who was coming to see you? Because you know Hoboken wasn't the best back then. I know Hoboken's changed a lot. Yeah, but we didn't. Yeah, but we didn't stick only to Hoboken. We were we were getting a lot of offers to play in Manhattan very quickly. So we played, like I said, in the art circuit, art scene, art galleries special events. Our first New York show, I believe, was a double bill with Klaus Nomi. And it was at Klaus Nomi, the opera sing- an opera singer, modern new wave opera, right? Um, he opened for us at the Ukrainian home. Like it was like a, it was an event space. It was not even a regular venue. Uh, we played a lot of special events. But we, we did not play only in Hoboken. That was our home and we played commercial shows there occasionally but really we rehearsed there we lived there but we played in you know in Manhattan at the right venue that we felt were right for us we did not play at CPGB we didn't we didn't that wasn't our scene we played more at a club called Matches Kansas City when it was still there and eventually we played at the Ritz which is now Webster Hall and it's more of a dance space a large hall you know uh, that's what we prefer to play that's the kind of place we like to play the most now you had a different sound. So how did the record companies produce uh, approach you? What what was their? Oh, well, the bongos were popular. So the thing is, the record companies want what's going to sell. So we first put out our records on a British label called Fetish. They were great, and they let us do whatever we wanted. The owner of the label was exactly our age. I think he was just turning twenty, maybe twenty one at the most. He was just a little older than us, maybe slightly. Um, and. That was very cool, but um, when we came back, we toured Europe first, and then we came back here, because um, that was, like I said, that was based in London, that label. So we toured through Europe first, then we came back here, um, we got offers to 
compile all of our British recordings on one album. They had all been singles in Europe. And we liked that idea. We made an album called Drones Along the Hudson, and that was all our singles that were out in England. But we uh, wanted to make we wanted to do a tour, so we started we started an American tour. We got an agent, and we we um, we booked ourselves all over the country. But during the tour, we got a call from the DC2s, the group, asking if we would be their special guest on tour. So we joined their first American tour as their special guest, and during that tour, we started getting offers from major record labels. The, most, the, the one that stuck out the most to us was RCA Records, mainly because of the history of RCA. And because two of our favorite artists, David Bowie and Lou Reed, were both signed to RCA. Now, when you, so, when you, when you signed with RCA, did they yeah. give you freedom to pursue the sound you wanted? Because I talked to so many musicians that say, everything's great until then the record company gets involved, and then they're wanting you to, you know, cut down your sound or go away from what you want to do. Did they let you really work with your creativity? I would say yes. I would say they let us do what we wanted. We wanted to experiment. We wanted to not do the same thing over and over again. We wanted to make each record different. And we wanted to, we wanted to, I wanted to learn more and more about how to produce great records. So I was happy to have the budget that they gave us because then we could go into the best studios in the world to record. So I personally, I can't speak for all the bands, but for me personally, I enjoyed the experience because I was I had access to the best studios, the best engineers, and the best producers through RCA. That would not have happened without their clouds and money. So I, I thank RCA for that, for those experiences. They didn't really tell us too much what to do. One thing they wanted us to, uh, to do though was get away from the garage rock sound because we tended to particularly uh, uh, enjoy rougher recorded sounds. We we liked not we, we didn't like a lot of smooth edges in the recordings. We liked a uh, rougher sound. And RCA just dealt we weren't we weren't um, sounding expansive enough. Like they wanted us to expand our sound to make it bigger and. You know, that was a challenge for me. Like, okay, let's try that. Because to me, that was like, well, that's that's a that's like a, a call to action. Like, how do you do that? I wanted to know how to do that. You know, do you see what I mean? I wanted to understand how David Bowie made the hero, made the, uh, with Tony Visconti, my friends, how they made heroes. I wanted, I wanted to know how big records were made and how, how to get a big sound. So I was happy to take on that challenge of, improving and increasing our sound, you know? Now, now, you said earlier that you always wanted to make different types of music with the bongos. How do yeah. you, how do you know what type of music you're going to, you're going to pursue or does it just come to you? Like, do you sit there and go, I want to do something more jazzy. I want to do this. Or does a band, would the band get together and say, this is what we're aiming for right now? Well, you know, music is, the word muse is in there, so it's really what your muse is telling you you want to do. I, I go with the feeling, what my feelings are, what it should sound like, what it should be like. For the bongos, when we did our first album for RCA, it was called Numbers with Wings, and the whole idea of that was to create like a big sonic soundscape, like a big sound, because we you know they said they wanted they want to have they wanted us to, to expand the sound like sonically, like with more lows and more highs and just wide widescreen sounds. And we did that, and that we made a very big-sounding record with Numbers with Links. Um, it was intentionally 
big sound. Now, it was a rock, straight-ahead rock sound, basically. But on the next record, we had been listening to some Brazilian jazz, and we wanted to have, I wanted to have more like tropical and um, South American rhythms with the with our backbeat, with the rock and roll. And that's how Beat Hotel came about. That was like, a, we had, uh, we were experimenting with a lot of different percussion, and we had a percussionist in the group who was Brazilian. And and brought something different to the band. Brought brought like a, a, a like I said a tropical back you know background thing. And that that record, if you listen to it, it, it it's mixed like a rock album, but it's very Brazilian in the rhythms. Now, so that was our second RCA album. So it's very very different from the first one. And it wasn't trying to sound so big. We started mixing. That was a different concept where we wanted it to sound urban and we wanted to mix this is a concept that's hard to understand and, and a little bit bizarre but instead of mixing from left to right we were experimenting with mixing vertically meaning that we would stack different frequencies to create the illusion of buildings and the skyscrapers of New York City so the B Hotel record is like urban urban jungle you know and it's like it's like uh, tropical rhythm but in a, a mixed in a very vertical way. It's hard to explain. It's mixed from bottom to top instead of left to right. Now, when you were uh, when to support that album, and you know, I know you guys are on MTV. Did you have a, did you yeah. have a heavy, hectic touring schedule? Yes, we did three hundred shows a year, and uh, that's a lot of shows. It was a very hectic schedule. It was a bit torturous in some ways uh, to do that because. You know, we also, besides the shows every day, there were a lot of other events. It's different now. Like, if you tour now, you don't have to do what we did. But we had to usually visit a radio station. Uh, we, when we would arrive in the town, we would usually have to go right to a radio station. And then if it, in the afternoon, we would be at a record store to sign copies of the new album and, you know, to do a, an in-store event. And then sound check. And then the show, it was a nonstop thing. It was, the touring was not just go to the venue and do a concert. Uh, it, was, it, it involved radio and retail, as well as then the sound check and the concert, and then the after party. So it was a torturous schedule to do for 300 shows in a row at each year, you know. Now, you were doing that. Now, now what led to the band? Was it that, that band to break up or, or you know? You... Well, yeah. That was part of it. We, you know, we, we, we toured like that from, from 80, like we talked about 1980 when we were just starting, through 87. Um, but but 80, by 85, we started to, we made a record uh, in the Bahamas at Compass Point with Chris Blackwell producing it. He was brilliant, brilliant man. And um, we had a, an amazing engineer, Eric E.T. Thornburn, as engineer. Uh, and we had one of the best studios, again, in the world, Compass Point Studios. Um, pretty much at our disposal and we were recording down there but during that time there was like we had just come down for landing we had just come off 300 shows and we ended up in the Bahamas and it was almost like we were just trying to catch our breath in a way so that record did not get completed until 2013 believe it or not so that's from 1985 to the year 2013 the tapes were in my Apartment. The incomplete album. It was finally released. It's called Phantom Train. And it was finally released. But um, we couldn't, we just couldn't go on at that point. We couldn't go on the way we had been going on, is what happened. And 
we all kind of wanted to have some time off. During the time off, I started performing acoustic shows in the village where I live with a cellist and another musician, cellist and a guitar player named Nick Celeste, and cellist James Tony. We started doing some shows locally, and they sounded really good. And we added a percussionist, wonderful percussionist, still on SNL every Saturday night, Valerie Naranjo. Um, and we started performing uh, just in the, in the neighborhood. And we recorded one of the shows, and it came out as an album called Pool Blue Halo, solo, my first solo album. And that actually did very well. And I got offers to perform all over the country and in Europe. So for the next two years, I went away with that album. And that's why the bongos, that's why the cakes were never finished of uh, the Phantom Train album until 2013, basically. Now, now what I, made you... I got signed, after that I got signed to Universal Records and I did another uh, two, uh, two or three more solo albums for Universal. Now, what was your process in doing a solo albums? Because, you know, I'm sure that when you guys, we, we played the show live, they recorded it, and it was very yeah. different, it was acoustic. But I'm sure, you know, this your stage presence must have been amazing because playing 300 shows a year yeah. just gives you the biggest chops amazing. ever yeah. you're right yeah what was it like though playing yeah. with new people i mean i know when you did that your first solo album what was it like playing with new people because you were so used to playing with the bongos well the, the key for me was not to try to replace the bongos so we instead of there was no drummer like in a normal drum kit there was no bass player we just had, for the bass, it was a cello. And for the drums, it was a percussionist who played symphonic classical percussion and African percussion. So there was no, there was no backbeat thing. No back, no hi-hat, no snare. Um, and the other guitar player, Nick, played acoustic guitar. So there was, there was never trying to be like the bongos. That was the first, that was the key for me. It's like, hey, I'll do this. I want to do something different. And I'm not going to try to reproduce anything that the Bongos did as far as the instrumentation. So I didn't want to replace, it was not about replacing anybody. So that that's how I approached it. I mean, when I went on stage with the Cool Blue Halo uh, group, if you could call it that. By the way, another band then copied that name and named themselves after that album, which is very disturbing to me. I hate that they did that. Yeah. <laughs> people, they could look me up and you find somebody else's band because they just copied the name of my album. But anyway, weird, very weird. But... My group, you know, when we went on stage, I never tried to even compete with what the Bongos did. It was a whole different kind of energy. It was very much, it wasn't all guys, for one thing. That was a big difference. Like, it wasn't four testosterone-driven men on stage sweating. It was two women and two men, and it was like this sound that kind of floated. It wasn't aggressive, and it wasn't, it wasn't even rock and roll. It was something completely different. And that's, that's why I was able to feel very comfortable. It, did, it, was, it was like a breath of fresh air to me to just leave what I had been doing for, you know, at that point, seven years, and just now go into something that, um, that didn't have that kind of demands on, my, on me. Now, you, you mentioned about the album back, you, read, you finished it in 2013. What made yeah. you go? What made you go back to it, and, and how do you attack that? Because you've grown so much as an artist since that yeah. time. You're a grown man now. You're younger. You didn't yeah. know the business is good. How do you approach yeah. going back and redoing something like that? And what made you decide to do it? Well, a record label that was a fan of ours from the very beginning 
named Jen Records, J-E-N Records, who put out our first drums on the Hudson here before, you know, before we were signed to RCA. Marty wanted to relaunch his label. It had kind of gone dormant. And he wanted to relaunch it with the Bongos. So he contacted me and asked if, about that album. He said, didn't you do a record that never came out? And I said, yeah, we did. And he said he would like to put it out. And I said, well, first I have to finish it. I said, if you give me the budget to finish it, we will, and we'll release it. So that's how that came about. So I spent the summer of 2013 in the studio with all those tapes I had, I had not listened to for decades, really, right? And uh, and got into it. I really liked it. I liked what we had done. I, in fact, I think in, musically, it may be our best album. Because we had come off all those shows, and everybody was playing so well. And there's very few overdubs. It was like just the band itself in a very pure way, in the most beautiful studio you can imagine. Um, so I really liked it, and I had a lot of fun editing it, and like finding the best takes of the songs, and then like, you know, just compiling an album out of those tapes. So Steve Adabo, a producer who people know from producing Suzanne Vega and a lot of great records in the, in the 90s and, uh, and beyond, um, he helped me put it together. He's great at restoration. We had to bake the tapes because the tapes were damaged by age, and we, we brought them back to life, and it's very, very, it's an excellent sounding record. So you have that record. Now, back to when you're, your solo career, you have, you have a good solo uh, career going. When do you start getting back into producing? Because I know you've done a lot of production producing work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go in and out of that. I go through phases where I, 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 I love working with them. Um, I really love unique artists like Fred Schneider. I got to produce some tracks for Fred Schneider in the 90s. I love that. I, I've worked with all, all types of different artists. One one of my favorites was uh, Quincy Jones' daughter, Jolie. We made a children's album. I had never done children's music before, so we made a really beautiful record in the mid-2000s called uh, Little Kisses, and it's for children, and it's Jolie Jones, Quincy's daughter. Through that, I got to meet and work more. I had met him before, but I got to work with Quincy and let him hear that just listening to the mixes with him was a very, very good education. Um, let's see who else I've worked. I worked with so many different artists. They're all different. Uh, most recently, I've had a lot of fun producing a big band from New Jersey called Remember Jones. They they are great. It's like a 25-piece band. Uh, the lead singer who goes by the name Remember Jones. And... Um, we did a tribute. We did. They have not has not come out yet, but we did some tracks tribute to Dean Martin, and Dean's daughter Dina sings on that. That was really fun to produce. I've worked with Liza Minnelli. I've worked with. I think my most one of my favorite productions was Pete Seeger, who's of course one of our great American heroes, and I got to produce his last single. And you can you can see the video of the actual making of the record on YouTube. It's Pete Seeger, and the song is called God's Counting on Me, God's Counting on You. And that's his last message, and it's a beautiful ending to one of the most amazing careers in any Amer by any American musician, or any musician anywhere. Uh, Pete Seeger is a hero you know, of mine. So that was a thrill to produce his last single. Now, now when you're a producer, because you're producing so many different types of bands, yeah. how do you know what to bring to the table? Is it just because I don't know anything about producing. Is it something yeah. that you just hear a sound and you know, or is it just instinct? I mean, how do you, because it's not like you're producing the same kind of band every time. You're going so yeah. wide. I mean, from Liza Minnelli to Big Band to Pete Seeger. How do you, was it, it's an instinct that leads 
your talent? Well, it's always about the artist. I learned that. Remember what I was saying about Johnny Kemp? It's always about bringing out the best of the artist. So it, that changes for each production. Like, what would be the best setting for this artist? What would be the best background, the best foreground for this artist? Like, when you work with someone like Eliza Minnelli, um, I got to produce a duet with one of my artists that I worked with, Johnny Rogers, a young piano player, and he and Eliza together. It was great. But it's like, okay, she is going to come alive if I create the, the atmosphere of a live performance in the studio. Because if it's going to be just somebody in a, in a booth, she's not going to give the performance she would if it was a live performance. So we created in the studio with a big band, 16 horns and all that kind of stuff. Um, we created like a set, like a live set, you know, and put it right in the middle with the microphone and Johnny with the microphone and let them do it like a, for the performance. So with some artists, you want to create a live setting. With other artists, you want to make it as intimate as possible or, and, as, and as, as private and quiet as possible. So it's, it's different for each artist. I have to listen. I listen to them and I talk to them a lot before we go in the studio to find out what it is that's going to bring out their best. Now, it's all, it, there's no formula for me. The formula is just to listen. My formula is to listen to the artist, to understand them, and then and then I can produce them. Now, as you're producing, I know how did you uh, meet up with Moby? <laughs> Moby, uh, it turns out Moby was a fan of the Bongos, and he was starting out. He had a band called the Vatican Commandos, and uh, he was covering one of my songs called The Bull Russian. I didn't know this, but I was at an event for the uh, Museum of Television and Radio, and Moby was there. So I went over and I said, actually, he came over to me, or, I, anyway, he said, you're Richard Barone. I said, yes, I am Richard Barone. And he said, and then I said, you're Moby. And he said, yeah, I'm Moby. And, and, he, and you know, he said he was a fan of the bongos. I said, well, really, I, I didn't know that. And I was really happy to hear that he had done the bull rushes. So it just so happened that at that time, we were getting ready to do a special edition reissue of Drums Along the Hudson, our first album. And I said, well, why don't you come in the studio with us and we could, maybe we should do a bonus track. And he was totally into it. And he said, and I said, well, why don't we redo the bull rushes? So that was just a thought. It was just a random thought, but he, he liked the idea. So we went in with Moby, with the original three bongos. And we made a new version of the Bull Rushes with him added into the group and he produced it and mixed it and that's how we did that. Now, you've also produced concerts. What made you, yeah. what, how'd you get into that and tell me about some of these different ones because you, you've brought great acts together when you do it. What made you want to do that? Was it, was it something that you said, well, because you've done so much, it's like, okay, well, I just need another hat. I'm going to be more busy. No. Or was it something that you just no. said, I want to get this across because of your love of music? I, uh, I had been, it, my first productions of sh concerts came because I was asked to produce a version of Handel's Messiah at the bottom line. Remember the bottom line nightclub in New York? Yeah. No longer there, but it was a great venue. So the owner, Alan Pepper, once, uh, after another holiday show that I was in, pulled me aside and said, Next year, I want to bring the Messiah here. And I said, what do you mean the Messiah? <laughs> I said, that sounds intense. No, no, it's the Handel's Messiah. 
and I want to um, I want to do it on the stage. I said, are you sure? That's a huge show. And he said, yeah, can we do it? And I said, well, give me 24 hours. And I came up with an idea called the Downtown Messiah, which was downtown New York artists doing the different arias in Handel's piece in the, in, in the classical oratorio, but having like David Johansson do one and, you know, different artists from New York do the solos and then have a choir to do all the choral pieces. There's so many great choral pieces in the Messiah. Anyway, it took, it took months to put it together, but for the following holiday season, we had the Downtown Messiah, and it was a hit. And we, it ran for seven years at the bottom line, every, every holiday season. And it had a different cast of performers each time. I directed it, and I produced it with the venue. And it was a large-scale show, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That started me thinking about the idea of doing large-scale concerts. So I wanted, I, it occurred to me during this time that I wanted to do a tribute to Peggy Lee, the great singer of the 50s and 60s, who I really loved. And she was getting older, and I felt I really wanted to do a tribute to her. So I went to George Wayne. I did not know George Wayne, but I knew that he produced the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals and was one of the best concert pr promoters and producers ever. So I met with George Wayne, and I told him I wanted to do a tribute to Peggy Lee. And he liked the idea, but he said I had to present it to his board, Festival Productions. So I did. I went to a board meeting, and I made my presentation. And um, it was going to be an expensive concert. I wanted like some really heavyweight, great singers to do Peggy Lee's music. And I wanted to do it at Carnegie Hall. And George Wayne... Uh, it's my, one of my favorite lines in show business that ever happened to me when he told the board, give the kid what he wants and just left the room. So I got the budget to do a concert uh, tribute to Peggy Lee at Carnegie Hall. That was 2003. And it did very well. And during the intermission, I got a representative from the Hollywood Bowl came backstage and asked me if I could bring it to the Hollywood Bowl. And I said, yes. And then we also brought it to Chicago. So that, that show had a good life. Peggy, it was called... There'll be another spring, a tribute to Peggy Lee. Um, and that got me started on producing big concerts and big big venues. Since then, I've done Essential Park a few times. I've done Carnegie Hall three times and the Hollywood Bowl once. Um, but I've done big concerts a lot, and I love it. I love producing and sometimes hosting. Now, you produced uh, something for Lou Reed at a South by Southwest Festival. Were you a really big yeah. Lou Reed fan? Was, it, was he an influence on you? not just an influence but also became later in life a friend and a mentor to me and I uh, he was very he helped me a lot and taught me a lot and so yes I was a fan from the, from you know from being when I was 14 or so that I started uh, really getting to the Velvet Underground but, but then later he became a friend and, and I was I wanted to do something special for Lou and, and his legacy so in, um, I guess that was 2014, I did a, a very, very long special concert at South by Southwest uh, that was a tribute to Lou Reed. And I co-hosted that with Alejandro Escovedo. We, both, we did that together. That was, like a, uh, that was a team effort, like Alejandro and I. We, we were able to bring in, he had his artist he wanted to bring in, I had mine. And it became an amazing show. I brought Sean, Sean Lennon in and uh, we had Lucinda, he brought Lucinda Williams, and I brought uh, Spandau Bella. Hey, it was like an endless, endless 
concert of just great Lou Reed songs being done by great artists. Now, with all the busyness you've had, at one point you actually even got to have a book. Now, how did the book yeah. come? How did the book come out? And and I know did Joyce DeWitt really read from the book? Yes, Joyce DeWitt played the part of me. In the we went on tour uh, when the book came out. We did a book tour, and also that tour ended at Carnegie Hall. We did a concert at Carnegie that was a frontman at the musical reading. And in that in that show, uh, Joyce DeWitt played the part of me which was really funny. And she's very funny at that. She yeah. does a great Richard. Yeah. <laughs> now, who approached you about the book? It was a book agent that uh, asked me if I had thought about writing the book. And I, I said, not really. And then she said, well, if you give me a proposal, I'll get you a book deal. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. I said, I've never really thought about it much. but I, So I, I looked up how to write a book proposal. And I did it. I made a book proposal. And um, turned it into her. And we got like five different offers from book publishers. I was amazed. So I picked one. I picked Hal Leonard books because that I, I wanted it to be in music stores as well as bookstores. So it came out on, it's still in print and it's, been, it's a Hal Leonard publication. It's called Frontman Surviving the Rockstar Myth. And it was so much fun to write that I, it was like a, a nightly meditation for me uh, to really understand what, I've been doing. I had been doing up to that point. And um, it was a good exercise and a lot of fun. I, I think it's a funny book and it's it's true and it's, it's used as a textbook in some universities. Now, talking about universities, you also are a professor. Yeah, I am. And how, that started because of the book because they were using it at, at NYU. So how what is that like yeah. to be a professor? You know, you're this, you're this musician and now you're yeah. teaching kids yeah. What is that like? Because there's an age difference now, and every music has changed, and you came from, you know, yeah. you've done everything, you know, and you you came from, the, you know, when it was, you know, studio and stuff like that. How do you relate to the yeah. kids? Easily. For one thing, I don't think about it as an age. I do, I know, I know there's an age difference uh, biologically and all that, but I, I, it's mentally, I'm a music fan, and that's ageless. You know, so I'm a fan of current music. I, I work with current artists. I work with all kinds of artists, you know. Um, I don't feel that the students think about that their professor is that much older than them. I think, especially at the new school where I'm teaching currently, uh, it's very much encouraged that we collaborate with the students and they work with us. Not as There's not that much separation like between the professor and the student. Like We are all learning from each other, and we can collaborate, I mean, the learning experience in my classes is a collaboration, like, it's a give and take, like, we have discussions, and I can argue with students, or agree with them, or not agree with them, and it's like, it's, it's, a, it's like talking to friends, you know, um, so, I don't think of it as that, there's not that much separation, it's, I'm just sharing what I can, what I have learned with them, so when I teach, there's two different classes I've taught, and one is stage presence, like you were talking about stage presence, so my class is called stage presence, um, and we discuss like what makes stage presence, and it's a it's a you know sixteen weeks of finding what their stage presence is for each student. There's a lot of psychology. I love that class, but I wrote that class. <laughs> but then another class that I teach now, I've been teaching for two years at the new school, which I also love, and gives me a lot of freedom, is 
Music and Revolution, which is the history of the music of Greenwich Village, where I live. And that class um, is more history, but we try to keep it as alive as possible. Like, what relates in the 60s to what is happening now? So the students can experience how the singer-songwriter movement exploded and why. Um, but always with a, always mirroring it with what is happening now and trying to understand how how society sh uh, affects and shapes music and how music can sometimes shape society. Now, so that's, my, that's my music and revolution class. I love both classes, but I'm, I'm especially right now invested in music and revolution because I think that is the core of so much of what we do with music is that it, it, it's um, have a message in it. You know, can't, we can have a message if we want. Now, when back to music with the bongos, you guys, you yeah. said you're doing some tour, some tour dates. When did you decide to start playing again together? Oh, that comes and goes. We're all friends, so once in a while, it just comes around. Like, hey, you know, somebody will make us an offer. Basically, that's usually how it happens. And it'll be some city that we haven't played in for a long time, and they'll say, "Would you like to bring the bongos here?" And I'm, I run it by the guys, and if they're into it, I'm up for it. You know, we're all friends, so. A lot of it is just like if the offer comes, we uh, if we can do it. If, if, if no one is too busy at the time, and no one is, uh, if, if we're available, um, it's like why not? It's fun, you know. It's a positive thing for us to play in the bongos. It's very positive. Now you you're so in tune with the music. I want to tell me about the MMA. Oh, the music modernization act is something that I lobbied for and met with many of our well-known senators and Congress people um, two years ago, and we got it passed. I mean, the MMA is the first step in a long process of getting fairness to the artist because, for instance, in the original MMA, was part, part of it was called the Classics Act, which did go through, which allows for artists recording before 1972 to get royalties. That was like a missing link. Like, what about artists who are older? Not me, but artists who I work with. Like, any of them, Paul Williams, or so many that are still, their songs, they're, they're so active in the music industry, but yet they're not getting paid for anything they did before 1972. It's ridiculous. So, that was a big part of it. But I guess the most important part for me was the, I think, scandalous abuse of artists uh, that is taking place with the streaming services and their low rates that they pay and their lack of payment. So it, the MMA is the first step in getting a standard payment system in place and also protection for the artist as far as the copyrights and, and, um, and, the, and artists who recorded before the copyright current copyright law was written, which is 1972. So those were the first steps. But the MMA is just part of a longer process. So we, you know, now there's d different bills being presented which deal with us being able to have uh, bring, uh, you know, to produce a small claims court, just a, a, a thing like that. For Because some protections are simply not there for artists, for musicians. And we're trying to get, one by one, we're trying to get them all everything we need to be properly protected. And that's, I do that with, the, with as a, one of the board 
members of the Grammys. I'm a governor. Um, that's one of our initiatives. Is this? It's an ongoing process of advocacy. Now and we have to stay on it. We have to stay on it all the time because the, the radio stations, streaming services, they have lobbyists that are hired all year round to lobby the opposite of what I just said, not to pay and not to be responsible. So it's like it's a battle because the, the uh, I don't blame the senators and Congress people. They hear that side of it all the time. So it, we have to go as artists and musicians. We have to go meet with them to show our side of it as well. You see, that sucks. The, the artists they, they always get like short end, and it's so irritating because you know I, I used know. To, I used to do stand up comedy uh, from eighty eight to ninety five. And you'd always have these club mm-hmm. owners who knew you needed to work, so they lowball you. And you didn't want to take it, but you also wanted to eat. And they always knew that, and it seems like the artists get screwed so much. Yeah. It's always the case. It's, 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 it's biblical. It's like it's an ongoing thing. I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's ancient and yet current. And it's, just, it's a struggle all the time. But the key is to stay on top of it. You know, because if you can... There are small battles that can be won. Peggy Lee was actually one of the first artists to stand up to the power of, say, for instance, hers was Disney, who had, in 1955, she did the voicings and songs for a, a, a movie called Lady and the Tramp for Disney, right? So then in the 90s and, two, and I guess early 2000s, they were still selling, like, DVDs and VHS because they were selling all her stuff but they were paying nothing to her because they said well there's nothing in the contract that says we have to pay for video release that was just for a movie to be seen in theaters you see what I mean right so then when they started reproducing and making albums from it this is years later decades later they're still using her music and her voice in VHS cassettes that are being sold everywhere they're making a fortune off it and she gets nothing so she sued Disney and won and it was a class action it became a, a I guess you could call it, a, it wasn't quite a class action lawsuit, but it is like that, and it made that impact. And that was the first artist to actually stand up to a major corporation like Disney and win. Now, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been going on forever, that's what you said. It's going on forever. It's all, now, now, you mentioned Paul Williams. How do you know Paul? The yeah. funny thing about Paul Williams oh, is, I love Paul Williams. he's, I, he's a legend. He wrote a song on my... He wrote a song to me on my last album, Glow. I mean, not my last album, one of my pre, uh, 2010 album, Glow. Uh, he wrote a beautiful song called Silence is Our Song. Um, Paul, I met, I was singing at a Paul Williams tribute concert. And I chose to sing a beautiful song he wrote called Fill Your Heart. And I knew it from two different sources. One was from Tiny Tim because Tiny Tim did the first cover of that song. In fact, it was Paul Williams' first cover of any of his songs. He, uh, Tiny Tim did that on, on his album, God Bless Tiny Tim. And then David Bowie did it a few years, like four, three or four years later, uh, David Bowie did it on Hunky Dory. Fill your heart with love today, don't play the game of time. It's a beautiful song. So I was doing that at a tribute, and after the show, Paul came over to me and said he really liked the way I sang it, and I thanked him. And he offered to write with me and for me. And we started writing together. So that was around, that would have been around 2000. So now, for almost 20 years, I've known Paul Williams. I can't believe it's been that long. And he's a great friend. And I, I've been involved with the reissues of his first albums, which have just recently been released on vinyl again. His first solo albums, they're great. They're fantastic records. So 
people should check that out. I mean, Paul Williams is a, he's a great songwriter, a great character, and a wonderful man. He is. He's just, he's a multi-talent. I know. I know. He's amazing. He's amazing. Now, you have some bongo dates coming up, but I also, if you go to people, if you go to Richard's website, Richard Barone, B-A-R-O-N-E.com, he has a listing yep. of his upcoming dates. Now, I looked up, you're playing World Cafe in Philly, but that's not with the yep. bongos. Tell me about that show. Well, I, you know, I love all kinds of different things. And one is I love the music of the mid to late 70s, especially the mid 70s uh, that came out of Brian Eno and David Bowie and Roxy Music and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and especially, personally, T-Rex. So I have a friend who I really admire, um, who is in a band called the Feelies. I love the Feelies. I'm a huge fan. And when the Broncos started, we were huge Feelies fans. So I've been, you know, uh, connected with them just as, as a fan and also performing with them for most of my life. But I've never been able to do concerts with, with Glenn Mercer, who's the lead guitar player, the singer for the Feelies. I, I've never had an opportunity to work with him so closely. But a year ago, I did. I got an opportunity to, at a Velvet Underground exhibition, we did a set of Velvet Underground songs and also a second set of songs that we feel the Velvet Underground inspired, bands, bands that were inspired by the Velvets. That led to us putting together a show called Hazy Cosmic Jive. And we've been doing it occasionally, not, not too many of them, but the selected venues and selected cities uh, around the Northeast, uh, it's Glenn and I, and we have it's uh, the, the drummer, uh, it's the Beelie's percussionist David Weckerman, Dave Weckerman, and bass player Box Rosello, who also works with Glenn and and Beelie's offshoot groups and all that. And it's a fantastic combo. And we do we focus on the mid seventies. We it's it, a lot of it circulates around David Bowie and his music because we found he was a connecting a connecting uh, element to all of these other bands somehow. It was certainly for Iggy and Lou Reed, Bowie, Roxy Music was the opening act, T-Rex, of course, Mark Boland was, was his friend and com competitor in some ways. Uh, it all connects kind of back to David Bowie in some way. So we call the show Paisley Cosmic Jive, which comes out of David Bowie's song, Starman. He says, that wasn't no DJ, that was Hazy Cosmic Jive. We thought that was a great phrase for what we're doing. And, um, it's a fantastic show. It's so much fun to dive into these songs now. These are the songs that kind of made me want to play guitar and made me want to, made both the feelings and the bongos gave us both a lot of uh, inspiration in our music. So it's kind of a tribute to an era. I'm thrilled to do it. And it's so much fun. It's actually a very fun show. And it's fun to play Brian Eno songs that no one really plays, like songs from his first solo album. Um, it's a blast. And it really gets to focus. I get to play a lot of guitar but, uh, with Glenn, like we do with dual lead guitars, which I don't, don't normally get to do. So it's a guitar. Sh if you like guitars, you would love this show. Well, that's awesome, Richard. You know, I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. Um, you have so much going on. You've had such a great career. People, go to richardbarone.com. Go see him live. If not with the show we just talked about, go see him live with the bongos. And so, yeah, check him out. Are you on Twitter, Richard? Oh, yeah. Richard Barone, just at Richard Barone. Okay, so follow him. I'm on, I'm on all the social media. Uh, Instagram and Twitter are just at Richard Barone. And on, on 
on the Facebook. It's the Richard Barone Official. Okay, so people, go follow him. And follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. Uh, check out over 770 episodes on my website, coopertalk.net. And you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. Remember, people, thanks for listening. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.